from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome, welcome, one and all, my extended radio family. And I want to once again welcome our new affiliate, WIMO 1300 AM Atlanta. WIMO 1300 AM Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, just keep them coming. Love to announce new affiliates, and uh, we've been doing a lot of that lately. So um, uh, I haven't set a, a goal, but hey, let's see if we can we can break ten by the by year's end. Ten new affiliates that would be great. I believe we now have uh, five, including our flagship here in uh, Toronto, the new AM740 Zoomer Radio, which is where I am perched presently at 550 Queen Street East in the great city of Toronto. What we do on this program, if you're new to the program, is we uh, update consciousness and uh, we talk about political subterfuge, we talk about spycraft, we talk about cover-ups, but we also, we talk about the nature of matter and the mystery of consciousness And uh, from time to time, we delve into parallel realities, quantum physics, nanotechnology. That's where we're going in this hour. And uh, always uh, great to have uh, my next guest back on the program. It's been a while. Jim Elvidge holds a master's degree in electrical engineering from Cornell University. He's applied his training in the high-tech world as a leader in technology and enterprise management, including many years in executive roles for various companies and entrepreneurial ventures. He holds four patents in digital signal processing and has written articles for publications as diverse as Monitoring Times and the IEEE Transactions on Geoscience and Remote Sensing. Beyond the high-tech realm, Jim has years of experience as a musician, writer, truth seeker. That's why we have him on the program. He merged his technology skills with his love of music, developed one of the first PC-based digital music samplers, and co-founded Radio Amp, the first private label online streaming radio company. For many years, Jim has kept pace with the latest research theories and discoveries in the varied fields of subatomic physics, cosmology, artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and the paranormal. This unique knowledge base has provided the foundation for his first full-length book, The Universe Solved. Jim Elvidge, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much, Richard, for having me on again, and uh, congratulations on the new affiliates. That's very exciting. Thank you. Yes, yes, we're very, very thrilled. Uh, we should also point out the website is theuniversesolved.com, theuniversesolved.com. It's been a while, Jim. What have you been up to? Uh, well, a lot of the same stuff. Um, you know, keep busy with my my day job, and uh, of course, after hours, I you know continue the research into consciousness and the nature of reality and nanotech, and I keep up with brain-computer interfaces, quantum physics, all that kind of stuff. So it uh, keeps me busy, and uh, it's very, very interesting, interesting world. You know, recently we've been talking about uh, mind control. And uh, we were looking at uh, the possibility that these some of these uh, shooters, uh, James Egan Holmes and uh, Wade Page, the um, the uh, the perp in the uh, the Sikh temple shooting, the massacre in, uh, in Wisconsin, whether or not they may have been um, uh, mind controlled um, assassins or, or programmed uh, killers, if you will. Um, where do you think we are? In terms of, I mean, you mentioned sort of computer mind interfaces, and I don't know if 
if that would be involved in something like, you know, uh, creating a Manchurian candidate. But bring us up to speed. Where are we in terms of, of computer mind interfaces? Where is the technology at? Yeah, actually, there's uh, so much going on in that area. In, in particular, things like um, artificial retinas. Uh, I think the it might be up to, say, 256 by 256 uh, pixels kind of thing. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it's very, very interesting, actually, when you kind of consider um, the artificial aspect of interfacing with our reality, you know, against what we, what we typically do. Um, we're some ways away from reproducing, you know, the ability to perceive things artificially the way our bodies do, but we're definitely heading in that direction. So an artificial retina, Jim, you mentioned 256 pixels by 256. What's a typical, let's say, computer screen? Um, it might be, you know, 1500 by 900, something like that. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's certainly not quite there yet, but... Um, you know, from a technology standpoint, th- this is something that follows tends to follow Moore's law. So, um, things that it was just a couple of years ago, uh, 16 by 16 pixel artificial uh, retina uh, retinal implants were the state of the art, and now they're you know quite a bit beyond that. So, you know, at one point it was enough to be able to sort of see shadows and, and basic movement, and now it's enough to be able to discern objects. So. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely um, ocular implants for the ears and, and other uh, ways of interfacing with the various cortexes of the brain, um, you, you know, you know, really start to, to call into question the ability of um, ultimately interfacing to the brain in such a way that you can sort of inject alternative realities. And, and these are some of the things that people have speculated about um, over time. Nick Bostrom, for example, has has, uh, you know, put forth the idea that since it's going to happen, since it's 15 or 20 years away, when when we can actually inject an artificial reality into our senses, you know, how do we know that it hasn't already happened? And, you know, he uses kind of a philosophical, logical argument to say that it probably has. So let me go back to the, the artificial retinas. Uh, so you could... Theoretically or practically, you could take one of these, uh, a pair of these artificial retinas, you could implant them in, it, it doesn't have, let's say it's a blind person, uh, and you could, you could then hook up something to that interface, uh, cameras or something that would allow a blind person to, to, to see, to, to see his environment. Now, mind you, it wouldn't have the resolution of a computer screen or a TV set, but it would be somewhat rudimentary, but you could give sight to the blind this way. Oh, absolutely, and and this is this has been done now. Um, I, there there may be certain categories of blindness that this kind of technique could uh, could remedy, but um, certainly there have been uh, people who have been blind and uh, now have the ability to see, you know, a rudimentary level with these artificial retinas. Um, the latest one I just looked it up is uh, 1500 diodes. So, you know that, you know, is roughly. You know, maybe what uh, I don't know, forty by forty, something like that. So we're being told that the the resolution on one of these artificial retinas is about two fifty six by two fifty six pixels. Uh, but I mean, do you believe that? Because I'm I, I subscribe to the the idea that whatever they, whoever they are, whatever they have, it's probably you know decades beyond what they're letting us know about. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Certainly, if you've 
read things like Skunk Works and and read up on some of the black ops programs that uh, that you know comes out uh, many many years after the fact after things have been declassified. Um, you know, it, it does seem like technology at the really bleeding edge level that we don't hear about is probably 10 years or so beyond what we do hear about. So, um, yeah, definitely a very good point. So let's um, employ Moore's law here, and and uh, but but assume that that um, the technology is far more advanced, and that we are in fact living in a simulated reality. Um, what else then might they be able to do aside from these artificial retinas? I mean, how else could they create or program our reality for us? Well, I mean, if you if you think about it, all of your sensory inputs come through the brain. And this is one of the areas where I've really been spending a little bit of time doing more research on recently. You know, we, we think of everything that we see as being our reality. Um, in reality, what's going on is there's a, uh, some electromagnetic radi- radiation in the form of light that bounces off these objects that we're looking at, and it... Um, you know, it, it imparts some energy on, on our retina, which converts it to effectively like, you know, bits that our brain then processes. And, you know, frankly, everybody's brain is a little bit different. Everybody's, you know, sense, sensory organs are a little bit different. And everybody's processing history is different. So um, I'm going to be biased based on things that I've seen before, experiences that I've had, you know, my history and experiences, um, that's going to really color the way I perceive reality. So, you know, the, the question is, all this stuff that we see that we think is real out there, it's all just subjective reality. It's just based on what our brain is, is telling us that it sees. So if it's possible to intercept any of these signals with things like brain-computer interfaces, uh, retinal implants, ocular implants, um, you know, nano devices that could, you know, potentially um, intercept your sensory signal, send them to a processing system, um, and then send a result back. Um, you know, our reality could be played with, and we would really have no idea that it isn't exactly what we think it is. In fact, it could be highly coordinated amongst most people, so that we all tend to see the same thing and experience the same thing. And there may be some people that, for whatever reason, uh, maybe due to uh, some uh, you know, problems that they have with, with their brain function or maybe due to uh, chance or who knows what, they're able to see something a little bit differently. In fact, you know, from a paranormal standpoint, it's, it's been shown that there are people who are much more sensitive to these paranormal effects than others. Um, Unless anybody, you know, from a scientific standpoint, be listening and think that the paranormal, you know, kind of argument is is uh, is not really true. Uh, the scientific research really does support that there is a uh, a subtle paranormal effect when it comes to precognition, when it comes to telepathy, and these kinds of things. Um, there's really solid research that that supports that. Um, so. You know, it, 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 we could go down a lot of paths here, but I, I guess the point um, that I'm making is that technology will have the ability at some point to do things like erase memories, inject memories, um, inject experiences, 
um, upload experiences temporarily so that you can kind of, you know, forget about your, your past and then experience something new and then download the past and resume where you left off. All this kind of stuff is, you know, is, is definitely in our future. And the only question might be, is it in our present uh, and is it in our best interest? I mean, uh, the, uh, in the one, on the one hand, Jim, it sounds incredibly exciting uh, to think um, that, for example, you could give uh, a sight to the uh, to the blind. No more blindness, no more deafness. Um, but but think of the other applications or implications as well. It could be a nightmare scenario, and we'll uh, we'll discuss when we come back. Jim Elvidge is with us. The website is theuniversesolved.com. We'll be back in a moment. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740. This conversation is starting to sound a whole lot like the movie The Matrix. Uh, Jim Elvidge is with us. We're talking about the possibility we are living in a simulated reality, our, our reality being programmed for us. Does the technology exist uh, Jim says, well, uh, we, we certainly are on our, on the road, uh, to, to, uh, to, to, to living in a simulated reality, but, um, an argument could be made that we, we are in fact there now. Some have, um, have posited that. Uh, Jim, is it within, let's say, the realm of possibility within our lifetime that, that we could, people are talking, you know, this quest for immortality, that, we could re-sleeve our consciousness, in other words, upload our consciousness and then put it in another body. Yeah, I, you know, I have a slightly different point of view on that than some of the uh, singularity folks do. Uh, I, I kind of think that consciousness really is something separate than an emergent property of brain function. Um, the assumption that you can upload your consciousness is based on the idea that your consciousness is coming from your brain function. Therefore, if you can reproduce everything that's going on in your brain, all of your memories, um, you know, and store that somewhere, that that should be sufficient to, uh, you know, kind of reanimate some other body, perhaps, by, by downloading it. But if you accept the idea that our consciousness is something that's out there, which I think there's a great deal of uh, scientific evidence for, um, then that whole scenario really isn't possible. Um, it, it, it's only possible that you could allow, as your consciousness, your soul or whatever, may allow it to transfer from vehicle to vehicle. You know what I mean? Um, so, so our consciousness exists outside, our mind, in other words, exists outside of our bodies, outside of the brain. Yeah, I, I think that's that's probably the case. I mean, I know that's not the you know the scientific norm, and and most uh, AI researchers kind of believe that um, you know you develop a, a you know a powerful enough computer with sophisticated enough learning software that it will become conscious. Um, I don't subscribe to that at all, really. I mean, we we have. Um, systems that are approaching the complexity of the human brain now, um, the world's fastest supercomputer, um, Sequoia, has a capability of like 16 petaflops, and the human brain capacity is 
somewhere in that range, 0.1 to 20 petaflops. Um, you know, of course, you have to run some learning software, but there is also plenty of neural net software and things like that to simulate brain functions. And there's nothing that, that indicates that any of these computers that have this, you know, a, amazing capability have suddenly emerged consciousness. Um, somebody could also argue that the Internet is about as complex as the human brain. You know, as of uh, late last year, the number of links on the web was equal to the number of synapses in, in a human brain. And arguably just as well interconnected. Um, but is the Internet conscious? Is it, is it starting to do its own thing? I don't think so. I think it still follows a you know, reductionist set of rules that, um, you know, that the, the people who build the servers and, and program the, the pages and the you know, dynamic components um, are, are you know, creating the, the structure for that. So I don't think there's anything, you know, that emerges from things as complicated as our brain just because it's that complicated. I, I, I happen to agree with you. I think um, uh, the, our consciousness, um, our mind or our soul, as some of us uh, choose to call it, it does exist outside of our mind or outside of our brain, rather, outside of our body. And uh, uh, you can't replicate that, um, although the materialists uh, would, would, as you say, beg to differ. Now, in terms of artificial intelligence... Um, where are we? Uh, you, you mentioned the internet, uh, you know, approaching the the, the um, I, I guess the complexity of the of the human mind or the number of connections and so forth. But uh, um, do you foresee um, within our lifetime uh, robots that would be virtually indistinguishable from humans? Oh, absolutely. Um, again, I, I don't think that they would have true consciousness, but I believe that they could be programmed to learn and to evolve um, in, in ways that we might not be able to predict. Uh, I mean, if you take something like uh, the Game of Life, if you've, if you've seen that um, simulated, it, it's really hard to predict the kind of patterns that show up um, as a result of some very simple rules. Well, with a robot, you're putting in some pretty complicated rules, and if those rules have feedback paths in them and, and allow that robot to, uh, to learn and, and develop new behaviors or... Uh, uh, you know, new ways of communicating or something like that. Um, certainly, they're they're going to do things that we don't expect, and therefore they're going to have the appearance of being alive. Um, but again, I think it's materialist. I think it's reductionist from a uh, from the robotic standpoint um, that they don't really have free will. They're still following rules. It's just that those rules, when they when they're viewed kind of at a higher level, they're a little bit unpredictable. It's kind of like um, uh, fractals. You know, fractals are based on some very simple rules. You can write a program that uh, creates fractal images, but the images are so incredibly complex. I mean, people had no idea that that complexity would emerge from something as simple as the basic rules that, that drive a fractal program. Um, same thing is, is going to happen with, with robots. They, they will appear live, they will appear to learn, and, and you know, they will learn based on the, the rules and the capabilities that we give them in their, uh, uh, in their construct program. But, but you could conceivably, uh, could you not, Jim, create a robot that has the appearance of self-awareness. Uh, in other words, um, it could sure. fake it. It could fake it to the to the extent that we would it would be virtually indistinguishable from another another human. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think so, and, and I think that you know you can. I mean, they've they've done that now, even with with some very crude chat bots and some of the things that you've probably seen on the web, where they you know appear to have emotions. Of course, that's programmed in there. You know, if you say something to them that's insulting, they can tell you that you hurt their feelings. But did you really hurt their feelings? No, it was a. Um, it was a, a phrase that was stored in some file that they pulled out based on, you know, the input that you just you just gave them some keywords perhaps from the from the words that you said to them. So you know, ultimately, yeah, they're not really thinking. They're they're thinking. They're processing, but they're not. Uh, they don't have free will. They don't have um, consciousness in the sense that humans do. And I don't believe they ever will. But they could give the outward appearance of having all of those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jim Elvidge is with us, theuniversesolved.com, and the book is The Universe Solved. Uh, this is sort of delving into, I guess, an area of bioengineering, but uh, let me throw it out there because uh, you may have a comment on that. And, and a scientist recently created, I mean, we are creating new life forms now. They recently created an artificial squid. They took a, a, a cell from a rat's heart, and they've created this, this uh, artificial jellyfish, I guess, or a squid. Uh, are you concerned about about this, or do you think that we should do in science whatever we are capable of doing? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I am concerned about it. I I think that um, you know genetically modified organisms, for example, I think it's a absolutely atrocious idea. You know, we 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 create these things because we can because it, it helps some company get better profits, and we you know shove some of the research under the rug that shows that it can be harmful to us. Um, so, yeah, a lot of these avenues of inquiry, you know, nanotech has dangers, um, genetic modification has dangers, artificial life has dangers. All these things um, certainly have a, a potentially a dark side. And, and I don't think we're really that good about putting in place safeguards ahead of time that can prevent, you know, some disaster running amok. Um, I, I, I happen to believe that it probably won't happen because if we are living in some sort of programmed reality, which it, you know, the evidence seems to support, then the, the likelihood that we're going to get some doomsday scenario and bring the whole thing to to an end is pretty small. Um, of course, we could always reboot, I suppose, and and reboot our consciousness and we we wouldn't be the wiser um, but you know it just seems to me that if you look over history we've always come very close to uh, or people have thought that we've come close to a disaster a nuclear disaster or uh, a population explosion or um, you know some virus getting out of the bag you know a bird bird flu that's airborne and these kind of things they never quite turn out to be as bad as we think they are, um, and it may be just sort of that evening effect that the, you know, the great cosmic program puts in place. Every uh, every year there's a new edition of uh, a John Madden uh, football, the, um, the folks at Electronic Arts, uh, EA Sports, uh, uh, put out this new, you know, whether it's uh, baseball or, or hockey, and, and now, if you've seen the commercials on TV for... EA Sports or any of these, even these online uh, games now, whether it's Warcraft, the 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 image 
is so strikingly real, and there's a fluidity to the to the to the uh, these characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're getting to the point where you you almost think you're looking at something real. Absolutely, it's, it's really kind of exciting. And, and uh, Electronic Arts, by the way, the building is right across from the uh, complex where where I live. And oh, he's not used, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I've I've used the. Um, uh, the Madden series as kind of an example, uh, even in, in my book and um, a lot of the interviews that I've done, because they really do kind of push the state of the art in terms of realism. It's It's been a couple of years even since I've walked into a, a Best Buy or some electronic superstore, and, and I couldn't tell if there was a football game on or if somebody was playing you know, Madden 2010 or 11 or whatever it was. But, yeah, every year they get um, more smooth and more realistic, and it's really, really amazing. And and if you can imagine, you know, this kind of simulation, um, well, let's say you had there, there are headsets now that have a, a fairly high number of pixels as well. Uh, I think I think the uh, the old headsets were maybe 640 by 480, and there are some newer ones that are you know much higher resolution, maybe approaching the resolution of your eyes, um, and they're wide angle as well, so you see things in your periphery. So you put those on and you watch something like you know Madden 2013 or uh, some of the more sophisticated. Um, you know, fantasy simulations, and it's just really hard to tell from a visual perspective that 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 you're not immersed in some reality. You know, the sound of sound quality can be just as good as as the way your ears hear normally. Um, so between sound and the visual stimulation, yeah, we're almost there. Yet there is something almost creepy about it. You know, I'll give you an example. Uh, there was a movie that came out, a Christmas movie. Um, animated. It was called The Polar Express with uh, Tom Hanks, and the uh, the the movie. The storyline was a little boy uh, doesn't believe in Santa Claus anymore. One night he wakes up and there's this train that comes barreling through his neighborhood, and Tom Hanks uh, is the conductor. Tells him to get on, and and uh, they're on their way to the North Pole. And uh, this adventure begins. But, you know, it didn't do that well at the box office because the um, one of the theories was the animation was too advanced and, and people were kind of creeped out by it. I don't know if you, have, if you saw that movie, but I get the same sense with some of these EA sports. Uh, it's almost too real. It's unsettling. Whereas um, uh, an animated movie that's a little more crude or rudimentary... Uh, they tend to do a little bit better because we can certainly distinguish, okay, that's a cartoon, and then this is real life. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, a, there's a term for that. I think it's called uncanny valley. So when you're on one side of the uncanny valley, the you know, clearly not realistic side of it, um, you don't mind. You don't mind playing these highly pixelated games um, because you know they're not real. And then you kind of merge into the uncanny valley where it does feel creepy because it's very realistic but not quite. Um, but the valley disappears when you get even more realistic. So at some point we come out of the uncanny valley and you know it's just a matter of time before we do. And I'd also say that the uncanny valley is different for different cultures. The Japanese culture, they're much more um, accepting of robotics and, and these... Um, strange faces that are almost human. I don't know if you've seen some of the, uh, you know, uh, robotic facial um, 
creations that the Japanese labs have done, but they look very, very close to being human, and they're creepy to us, but they're not so much to them. They're, they're much more an accepting culture of, of robotics than we are. So, yeah, Uncanny Valley is, is a... We're, we're in it now, and we will uh, pop out of it at some point, and certain cultures will pop out of it before other cultures. <laughs> and, and again, if, if uh, this is what EA Sports is releasing to the general public, again, mm-hmm. I go back to this uh, a, a very important point. I think what whether it's DARPA uh, or some other uh, group has tucked away somewhere on a shelf not telling us about is is maybe on the order of 10 or 100 times more sophisticated, and that I find absolutely frightening. We'll come back. Jim Elvidge, The Universe Solved, will open up the phone lines and make them available. If you have questions and comments, get involved in the conversation. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And uh, coming up on the uh, the program in the not too distant future, we'll uh, take a look at the uh, Freemasons. Are they a misunderstood fraternity or a satanic cult? Have some have suggested, and uh, we'll also take a look at um, the uh, the uh, uprising in Syria, which follows, of course, uh, similar uprisings in places like Tunisia and Egypt and Libya. And I'll speak to an independent researcher who says that the Arab Spring. Uh, which is continuing on into the summer and fall of 2012, is um, nothing like we've been told. It's not some popular uprising orchestrated by social media-savvy um, young uh, young people, you know, thirsting for democracy. It's all been um, orchestrated by the CIA and NATO intelligence. He calls it the fake Arab Spring. That's all upcoming on The Conspiracy Show. Right now, Jim Elvidge stays with us from theuniversesolved.com. Nanotechnology, Jim, it's one of those buzz terms uh, that gets tossed around, and a lot of people, myself included, don't really understand what it's all about aside you know my understanding is limited to the idea that we're talking about you know self-replicating miniature robots but what is nanotech yeah so so that um, self-replicating idea is is an aspect of it um, nanotech just means 10 to the minus ninth of a meter or one billionth of a meter um, so we've been doing things at a millionth of a meter uh, kind of a, a micron for for quite some time you know the if you, if you hear of, of different you know micron level um uh processes in terms of uh chip creation uh, we're able to manipulate um matter at that level and and nanotechnology is taking it 1000th deeper so it's kind of significant because it's getting to the point of sizes of molecules. So, for example, a, a you know a DNA molecule has a diameter around two nanometers. So, when we talk around about manipulating things at a nanometer level, we're talking about you know putting molecules together, and that's that's really interesting because that allows us to program things that can interact with molecules or cells or um, components of the body that um, otherwise we couldn't do. It's kind of like, you know, when we do things like treat diseases with drugs or, um, you know, whatever practices have, have been done so far, it's, it's like taking a blunt hammer and trying to split an atom. Um, 
you know, maybe not quite that bad, but we're, you know, we, we try things and we see if they work and then we just use them. Um, and they all have side effects and, and, and so on and so forth. But with nanotech, you could effectively really program something at a very, very tiny level to seek out and destroy the, you know, the disease or the irregular cells or whatever it is that it's meant to change. Are they actually little robots, though? And how, if so, how would you build a robot that small? Uh, well, well, that's one aspect of it. Again, nanotech just means manipulating things at that level. So there's lots like, um, you know, carbon nanotubes and, and things like that that have um, interesting material um, aspects to them that can be used for strengthening things or, you know, preventing materials from, from uh, you know, soiling or whatever. Um, Mopping up yeah, an oil spill. Yeah, well, exactly. But, um, you know, when you talk about robotics, then that takes it to a different level, um, nanomachines, where, where you're actually programming things at a very small level. Uh, we can, you know, we can definitely manipulate, um, you know, objects on a molecular level now. So uh, we can program small robots at that level with some instructions to do certain things. Now we have a nanobot. We have something that small that can be programmed to perform some activity based on receiving some input. Um, and that, you know, you can imagine the, the, you know, myriad applications for something like that, good and bad. Well, if what if they're self-replicating? We have this doomsday scenario. I think even the one of the pioneers of nanotech, Eric Drexler, uh, talked about this in his book, Engines of Creation, where you have these, Great imagine group. billions of, of these self-replicating robots, and it, all of a sudden it goes awry. And instead of, you know, doing the job that, for which they were built, like I mentioned, mopping up an oil spill, they right. start consuming everything, all the matter on the earth. Right, and it's it's kind of like, to, to me, it, it sounds a lot like the, you know, the specter of... Um, you know, sort of like a, a nuclear Armageddon type of scenario happening in the Linear Hadron Collider because we're, you know, playing with energies we don't fully understand. You know, people much smarter than I do who are experts in that area tell us that it's safe because of this reason or that reason. But, you know, I agree that it it seems like if it's possible to program something that does nothing but replicate itself um, and... You know, you have to you have to be able to turn that off at some point. So if there's no fail-safe mechanism, you know, how do you, you know, how do you turn that off? I mean, I could imagine that in order for it to replicate itself, it has to have material. So where is it getting that material from? From its environment. So is it just kind of breaking down everything that it sees and 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 building it up? I don't know if that's even possible, but um, it does sound like a you know kind of a way out scary scenario. Um, All right. Well, let's talk about some upside of nanotechnology when we come back. Jim Elvidge, my guest, The Universe Solved. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, Jim, uh, let's let's uh, try to get a little more positive then and talk about uh, the upside of, of nanotechnology. You, you talked about, uh, you know, the, having these, unleashing these these nanotech robots inside, I guess, our bloodstream, and they could attack, you know, a particular, let's say, a cancer cell or something. So it sounds like uh, eventually we could replace invasive surgery by just a little pill containing some of these self-replicating robots. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, this has been done, uh, something called nanoshells that travel through the bloodstream, they, and they can accumulate in cancerous tissues, um, and you could attach you know, chemical medicines to them that would target those bad cells only. Um, but that's, I mean, that was sort of a, uh, a 2009 technology. Uh, more sophisticated would be taking uh, robotic nanoparticles and actually have specific targets. Um, there's one called IT101. It's a 30 nanometer particle that's been tested in some human safety trials. But so yeah, things like that, fighting disease and cancer is definitely a um, you know a possible uh, upside to nanotech. Cleaning up environmental disasters, uh, maybe global warming. You know, w- releasing some uh, some some well-programmed bots into the atmosphere and breaking down uh, you know some of the um, uh, the global warming agents, uh, or you know, I, I could even imagine that you know, if if you had the the right technology um, to seek out, say, um, cores of nuclear weapons, you know, all it would need to do is convert U two thirty five into something that's benign, and then your uh, your nuke would never explode. So it could theoretically be a nuclear deterrent. And I can imagine that at some point, if somebody has the uh, the wherewithal and the and the technology to unleash that on their enemies, then that could be more of a uh, you know more of a threat. You know, you could annihilate your your enemy's nuclear deterrence, and then you ha- still have your own. So you could imagine kind of nano wars. Um, this was actually something that was written about by Neil Stevenson in the book uh, Diamond Age. So if, if people are interested in that kind of thing, so he really raised some interesting ideas about um, wars with nanoparticles that that could happen in the future. And now uh, we we appear to be having wars uh, fought sort of at the uh, a computer virus uh, level. Oh, yeah. I know you have a, a you know a background in computing and so forth. There is there is a, a virus that was unleashed into Iran's nuclear uh, a program where, for the first time, you had a, a virus that would actually uh, cause a mechanical device. Uh, I guess in this case, it was the centrifuge uh, to fail. Um, have you looked into sort of the what did they call that Stuxnet? Was that what it was called? That that program? Yeah, I think so. I, I read a little bit about that at one point. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that all the things that that people say can't be done. <laughs> you never say the word can't, right? Eventually, somebody's going to figure out how to do uh, exactly what um, people on a, on a particular time say cannot be done. Uh, parallel universes. Uh, uh, Jim, I know this is an area that you like to delve into. It's one of my favorite uh, topics. Uh, recently, well, I guess it's been a year or so, at Oxford, some mathematicians came out and said that the the multiverse theory of the uh, of the universe, the multiverse theory is correct, meaning that uh, you know there are there are an infinite number of of parallel universes uh, out there what did you what do you make of that yeah i mean i i i think that it all depends on how you look at the data i mean um ecoki which is a a research facility a physics research facility in in austria um came to the conclusion a few years ago that reality doesn't exist unless it's observed. Um, I mean, you know, down to the the microscopic level and the macroscopic level. So, and they determined that to an order of like 80 orders of magnitude of certainty. So there, I have read research that is convincing, you know, for multiverse research that's convincing against multiverse 
research for reality against reality. Um, you know, it really kind of depends on the way the experiment is is constructed, I guess. But you know, my my belief is that the, this idea of infinite uh, realities is, is doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, I, I understand where it comes from and why it's a kind of a convenient alternative to the Copenhagen interpretation in quantum mechanics. But you know, if you if you think about all of the evidence that our our reality is is under a uh, program control, there's no reason that you would make it infinitely more complex. Um, to have something create an infinite number of realities requires an infinite amount of energy, and I just don't think that our our universe is infinite in that way. I think that um, what has been created is finite to some level. It's huge, but um, it does have some bounds, and therefore the idea of infinite realities can't fit within that paradigm. I, I want to go back to something you just mentioned, the, the theory that uh, that reality doesn't exist unless it's observed. Uh, this is something that I've always wondered about. The moment that you exit a room and shut the door, does that mean then that everything in that room just collapses like a waveform? It's not being observed, so it doesn't exist? No, I don't think so. I, I think e- even in sort of standard scientific theory, what they're saying is that if something hasn't yet been observed, as soon as it is observed, the waveform collapses and you know its position and, and all of that. Um, but then it doesn't go into an uncollapsed state when you stop looking at it. You know what I mean? So, but, but if you think about this from the other way around, think about it from the, the standpoint of, you know, if I were the designer of a universe, if I were creating a universe, how would I do it? Do I need to create the, the detailed structure inside a tree if nobody's ever going to cut that tree open? You know, I, no, I only need to create what's observable um, I don't need to create anything else until somebody tries to observe it. Then my program has to dynamically create that. That would be, you know, huge orders of magnitude simpler than something that creates detailed structure of every component throughout the universe. Um, so if I'm going to create a, you know, a fantasy world or a universe or anything like that, I'm going to do it dynamically that way. And if you f- follow those rules, it turns out that everything that we experience in quantum mechanics, entanglement and you know the observer effect and all of those kind of anomalies all make total sense from the standpoint of you know an efficient programmed reality. Right, in other words you only you only need to create those complex components if they're going to be observed. Otherwise, it's like a movie set. Uh, it, it reminds me of uh, of, of uh, the Jim Carrey movie, The Truman Show. And every once in a while, you know, uh, something happens on in his programmed reality. Uh, an elevator uh, opens, and he, ha- he ca- catches a fleeting glimpse of the fact that there's no actual elevator car there. He is, he's sort of seeing behind the set. Right. Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, you know, the example I've used before is like a cup of coffee that you have. You don't have to model every subatomic particle in that cup of coffee to interact with it the way that we normally do to generate the smell, the, you know, the visual of the, you know, coffee swirling around the cup, maybe a little bubble, the way that it tastes. That requires a certain amount of information and maybe it's 10 megabytes of information. But the total potential information content in a cup of coffee is probably 
you know, 100 trillion megabytes or, or more. So there's a re- ratio of maybe 100 trillion in compression that can be applied to an ordinary object, um, you know, just just to make sure that it's observable. Now, as soon as somebody wants to isolate an atom in that cup of coffee and look at it, the program's going to have to figure out a definitive position for that atom, which results in the collapse of a wave function or, you know, what they call decoherence in quantum mechanics. Um, in addition, the behavior of that atom from that point on might be under control of the program in, in much the way that uh, a finite state machine works. So, um, you know, atoms, subatomic particles may follow a certain set of very simple rules, but those rules don't have to get kicked off until somebody's really observing them. And they could be kicked off using a, a random number generator and, and picking some components. And, and thereafter, the, um, you know, the way they behave is, is very predictable. If you have two particles right next to each other, you might as well use the same random number seed to kick off their behavior patterns, and that might be what entanglement is. So, so all of these things they they make sense when you think about them, you know, sort of from the opposite standpoint from the idea of creating a reality. Um, if you create a reality, you have to have things like entanglement and decoherence. Are you uh, are you a positive, uh, uh, hopeful about the future, or are you um, fearful? Uh, a little bit of both. I you know I, I think I'm I'm not as fearful as some of the doomsday uh, types that are out there for the reasons we talked about before. That I think there's sort of an evening effect to our reality, um, and you know take take for example the the specter of the collapsing dollar. Well. You know, if the dollar collapses, you know, what, what's to say the dollar is going to collapse before the euro or the yuan or, you know, any other w- world currency? Um, and if all currencies collapse at the same time, then there has to be something in place to facilitate trade and commerce. So, you know, it, it's all, it's kind of all relative, isn't it? You know, I, I think that whatever com- countries are, uh, the most in debt, they're going to have the hardest time initially, and then although there may be sort of a domino effect, um, I think the whole world can't come to a total collapse. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me, but that's what gets predicted by those who are, you know, sort of more, you know, on the on the you know negative side of of the fence. What about the the the, um, the other area of huge concern, and that is is peak oil that that we have in fact. Um, uh, now arrived at a point where even if we wanted to uh, throw the remaining reserves or resource, uh, this non-renewable resource, into converting to another form of, of uh, whether it's hydrogen or so forth, in order to retool, now there's not enough energy available to, to effectively do that. So we're at a point of no return. Yeah, you know, I I just don't see that as as a problem, and, and for a number of reasons. A, you know, oil could be abiotic. I I don't think anybody's really ruled that out yet. In fact, I used to take um, I, I took an astronomy class from Thomas Gold, who was a an, an early um, advocate of the abiotic theory. Very very smart guy, you know, and he, he he came to his conclusions logically, and it was definitely against the mainstream, which scares a lot of people. Um, a lot of people who build their careers on some, you know, foundation of, of uh, 
you know, of beliefs, um, and then somebody goes against that, and then they have to attack them. So, you know, that's a possibility. You know, I've heard that there are oil reserves in the United States that exceed the oil reserves in Saudi Arabia. I don't know if that's true, but... I've done a number of shows on abiotic oil, uh, and and I think there's something to it as well. uh, We're certainly behaving as if we have abiotic oil. Uh, Jim, listen, uh, always a delight having you. Let's not uh, wait so long before we have you back on. And uh, what are you working on? Yeah, so um, actually kind of diving into the nature of matter, you know, this whole thing with the Higgs boson has uh, really got me very interested in, in what matter is all about. And, you know, the more I look into it, the more I realize that matter is really nothing but information. And our world, you know, at the deepest level is just data. And that's just one more bit of evidence for the programmed reality model. All right. That and the nature of consciousness. Uh, all right, let's to, discuss uh, matter yep. um, when we have you back on. Thanks for this, Jim. Would love to. Thank you, Richard. Great to be on the show. Thank you. Jim Elvidge, com. Thanks to Dave Gaskin for technical production. And uh, back next week, we'll talk about the fake Arab Spring. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.